Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We're going to be looking at subjects that, honestly, we'd rather wince at and look the other way, which, of course, is why we're dealing it with it here on A Better World, those difficult conversations, those difficult subjects that, in order to create a better world, a sustainable world, a harmonious world with good relations between people, cultures, we have to have these discussions because they've been so long ignored and uh, put aside. So today, we are going to be looking at the subject of society's collapse, its institutions, its infrastructure, against the backdrop of ecosystemic collapse, sometimes referred to as extreme weather conditions, as climate change, as global warming, as massive contamination of our elements, water, air, soil. And we'll be looking at this from a very personal human point of view. How do we relate to these facts around us? How do we relate to each other as we watch a dissolution of life as we know it? And how can we adapt in a way that, let's just say, our evolutionary potential may have in store for us? Maybe there's a way of adapting in a way that is greatly growthful and allows for powerful personal development. Maybe there's a way of being through this in a compassionate, loving, understanding, intimate, and honest and honorable way. Very interesting types of subjects. And I'll be unpacking these today, unfolding them with a woman who has been focusing on these subjects as a teacher and as a psychotherapist for many years. She's written a number of books on the subject. Today's book that we'll be focusing on primarily is Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times. Carolyn Baker. Carolyn, as I said, is a psychotherapist. She's been in practice for some 17 or so years and has also been an adjunct professor of history. So it's with great pleasure that I invite Carolyn on today to talk about these subjects and see how we can come to a greater understanding of them and perhaps equip ourselves, prepare ourselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically for a world that is going through a very powerful transition, let's put it mildly, and uh, who we are in the space of that time change and transition. So, Carolyn, welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you hear me okay? I can. I can hear you just fine, absolutely. If you just focus on speaking into the microphone of your phone, that would really help a lot. But I okay. can definitely hear you. Okay. First of all, your 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 work is uh, wonderfully interesting and also deeply provocative, Carolyn. And um, I laid out a certain kind of context um, for understanding 
uh, what you've been talking about for many years, actually, many of us have been. And um, although I would really like to hear from you, um, your view of, for our audience, your view of the meaning of collapse and how you feel we best are to understand it. Well, thank you for asking that question. That's a really, really important question. In fact, it's the most important question. And I'd like Mm. to begin answering it by sharing a quote from Charles Eisenstein, who you probably maybe have interviewed on this show. Yes, he's he's been on these airwaves, yes. Okay, author of Sacred Economics and a More Beautiful World That Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And he says, resisting or postponing the collapse will only make it worse. Finding new ways to grow the economy will only consume what is left of our wealth. Let us stop resisting the revolution in human beingness. If we want to outlast the multiple crises unfolding today, let us not seek to survive them. That is the mindset of separation. That is resistance, a clinging to a dying past. Instead, let us shift our perspective toward reunion and think in terms of what we can give. What can we each contribute to a more beautiful world? That is our only responsibility and our only security. Now, one of the things that both Charles and I do is we like to frame this incredible transition that our planet is experiencing in terms of a rite of passage. And there are many, many comparisons that I think really fit. Um, In a rite of passage ceremony, which traditional cultures have incorporated for thousands and thousands of years with their young people, we have a situation where the young person is prepared actually from birth for this rite of passage, which, which the community perceives as a turning point, a watermark, a benchmark in his or her life. And so the child is prepared from birth for this initiation ceremony. The older women take the girls and the older men take the boys out into nature. And they ask this young person to go through some sort of ordeal. And the ordeal is almost always a brush with death. There's no guarantee that the young person will survive. But the community believes that for the evolution of that young person and for the benefit of the community, they must go through this brush with death, this rite of passage. Sometimes the young person doesn't make it, but they're willing to take that risk. And so the young person uh, has to go out and, and experience this ordeal, and in the process, he or she is compelled to reach down inside themselves and find resources and gifts that they did not know they had, and then to bring those forth in order to pass through the ordeal, after which the young person goes back to the community, the community celebrates, and the young person then takes his or her place in the community. And then as as they age, they turn around and they begin to initiate young people themselves. So what is the purpose of all this? To become a different human being which they cannot do without this initiatory experience. And I believe that this is what we are passing through right now. Humanity is going through a rite of passage, and it is a brush with death. And there is no guarantee that everyone will survive. 
but it is a time for us to grow up, to become real men and women of spirit, of transformation. That's what this is all about. And so it isn't about buying lots of, you know, sea rations and uh, storing lots of beans and bullets. It's about, yeah, it's about um, our emotional and spiritual preparation, our emotional and spiritual resilience, and living with two of the most important questions, which I believe we're faced with at this time. Who do I want to be as this collapse unfolds? And what did I come here to do? What did we come here to do together? That's how I'm viewing this collapse. Mm, That's beautiful. I love the frame. I think it's really kind of mythically coherent. It really takes history and the mythic domains of human life and culture very much into proper view and consideration. It really much, very much honors them. Um, yes, it's a brush with death, Carolyn. Uh, I was thinking uh, maybe, maybe uh, another way of looking at it, at least, is removing from the ordinary habituated state of thinking and feeling and being and placing the young person of that age, you know, in Judaism, for instance, it's the age of 13 of what we call the bar mitzvah, for instance. Um, in right. Native American contexts, there's the vision quest, you know, and it's a removal from life as we know it into another, at the moment, unknown state, like you were saying, uh, oftentimes in the woods, in the forest, and sometimes in the case of the vision quest, left alone for what might be several days or even a week, um, with and the need to become inwardly resourceful in order to find food or at least water and to uh, connect with the heart, spirit, and soul in a way that the busyness of daily life, uh, the habits of daily life, don't quite allow to occur in the same kind of way. So uh, I feel that that frame that you are referring to here, and Charles, is really very lovingly supportive of this evolutionary um, spiral I I do believe that we're on. But I want to ask a question, if I may, and that's while Charles was talking about sort of a letting go process of things as they are, not to resist. On the other hand, because, you know, of course, there's this whole wish to fix, you know, it's a very kind of masculine type of left brain kind of activity. And, of course, I'm subject to that. We all are. Um, You know, I look at our current situation and I look at a fossil fuel based economy, a military industrial complex based economy, dot, dot, dot and say, we can fix this. And, of course, the fix is an evolutionary one. It's a psychological and emotional maturation process. But is that the same as allowing things to change, or how how does that work? Well, um, yes, that's an excellent question. I'm going to answer it, and I would like to start answering it by saying 
going back a bit to the first question, that this yes. brush with death is, is more than just a brush. There is actually a required death involved, which is the death of uh-huh. the ego, the death of the operating system of the rational mind and human ego. And that, mm. I believe, is, is the most important thing that we are being asked to deal with and open to right now in this global crisis. And uh, as you know, I'm very deeply connected with Andrew Harvey, who's the founder of the yes. Institute for Sacred Activism. And so uh, sacred activism is very much uh, where I am coming from. And I believe that we absolutely must be activists. We must uh, follow whatever our hearts call us to in terms of a path of resistance. You know, Andrew says in his book, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, that we should follow our heartbreak, and whatever gets us up at 3 o'clock in the morning and breaks our heart, that's where we should put our energies. So that's different for everyone. Uh, So we must be engaged in sacred activism, but that's different than trying to control the outcome. We don't know what the outcome of our efforts is going to be. Sometimes it looks like the outcome is nothing, zip, zero, zilch, you know, why am I doing this? When, in fact, uh, the outcomes, the results of our activism may be very subtle but very, very profound. And it's not our job to figure out the outcome. It's our job to do what is right and to do what is calling us to serve with compassion and leave the rest in the hands of the mystery. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. I very much appreciate that. That's, you know, um, some people even frame the whole idea of meditation and the practice of meditation in a similar way, that it's not there. there's a goal, although there may be a goal, but it's the process itself that we're paying attention to. And the process, in a sense, begets the goal about which we know nothing at the outset. Yes, I fully agree with that. Um, We just absolutely cannot know the outcome, but we must engage in the process. We must follow this calling of our hearts uh, to do what is right and to serve and to resist and to make the difference that we can make within our power. And, And we don't know where that's going to go. Absolutely. So, Carolyn, uh, would you say that even if things weren't as in so many ways troubled as they are today, because we're looking at, you could say, the hallmarks of a sixth extinction, uh, we know and we have, you know, geologists and other scientists have marked that there have been five distinct epochs and five distinct extinctions uh, in the time that we know of on planet Earth. And by all that we see, we are heading toward a sixth. Of course, there are others on the planet who are calling for uh, the sixth epoch, which is the opening of a new space, of a a transition into, you know, as you speak, I keep thinking about the magnificent uh, biological miracle of a caterpillar to a butterfly, you know, and of course I think that's an image that is very much dominant in today's world, at least the world that we inhabit. And uh, um, so I wanted to just say what you're saying, and I guess both of us, 
applies whether we're in this crunch time or we're not, would you say, or how would you comment on that? Well, I would absolutely agree. We're in some sort of crunch. Now, how that's going to play out, I don't know. I personally um, I personally cannot imagine the way things are going right now. I cannot imagine much human life on this planet after 2100. It, it just is moving very quickly uh, against us and against all life on this planet. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I hope I am. But, you know, it is, it is one of the things it is doing, this whole process of extinction or prospect of extinction, is compelling us to look at death and to look at the death of the body, to look at the death of the ego, and to be actually talking about and preparing for death. You know, have you noticed, I'm sure you have, all of the death cafes that are springing up around yeah. the world? You know, For sure. people coming together to have permission to talk about death. Uh, last Absolutely. year, I wrote a book called, uh, I co-wrote a book with, uh, with scientist Guy McPherson, Extinction Dialogues, oh, yeah. How to Live with Death in Mind. And so he wrote out the science of climate, of climate change that is absolutely mm -hmm. job And I wrote the part about how we deal with this emotionally and spiritually. And so um, we are being called right now to really look death in the face. Uh, but most importantly, as I keep emphasizing, the death of the human ego, the death of our programming, the death of the paradigm of industrial civilization, those are the deaths that we cannot escape. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's great. I, I, I totally uh, see what you're referring to about the prevalence of uh, the subject of death, including, by the way, uh, the number of books, virtually a proliferation of books on the subject of what life is like after this thing that we call bodily death, such as right. Ibn Alexander, the neurosurgeon's yes. book called Proof of Heaven, such as... Yes. Um, uh, uh, Annie, uh, her last name is escaping me, about her, the aftermath of Billy Fingers. Uh, Annie Kagan is a beautiful book. Um, it's about life on another dimensional level that continues on beyond the body. And I think there's this plethora of looking at it from that point of view. Anita Murjani, example, again, uh, what her body was riddled with. Uh, lymphoma and she was clinically dead and heard everything going on met with her father who had died just shortly before had an amazing conversation with him and meetings with friends etc and then looked back into the hospital room and said hello everyone I'm coming back really interesting phenomenon one of my great heroes is Mark Nepo, and of course we know about his brush with cancer and, and what he went through. I am a two-time yes. breast cancer, cancer survivor, and I can tell you mm. that um, in those experiences of facing death in the face, 
um, what I, you know, I really had some major epiphanies, especially the second one that happened three years ago, and I'm happy to say I'm doing fine. But um, what it did was really cause me to look at life and what I was doing with my life and to make a commitment to do the work that I'm doing more than I have ever done before. And what has happened as a result is I feel so alive. I made major lifestyle changes. I am more alive and feel younger than I've ever felt in my life. And it has given me such an appreciation for and gratitude for life. I take nothing for granted. And so I thank that brush with death and uh, for the the moments of truth and teaching that came from that. Mm, so beautiful. I, I can very much appreciate not having been through that, but I have, you know, interviewed so many and as a psychotherapist as well have dealt with these kinds of issues. And it's just isn't that it's so ironic that at the moment of uh, the closeness and intimacy of death is what brings us to feeling most alive. Absolutely. And that's I the beautiful that, paradox of it. <laughs> yeah, that's the beautiful paradox of it. And I think it was designed that way, quite honestly. I think there's some yeah. kind of master design here, and I very much appreciate it. <laughs> Talking about master designs, I'd really like to reach back into your own personal history, which I found so interesting uh, at the beginning of your book, where you spoke about uh, your family life and reading mm-hmm. revelations virtually nightly as a family mm-hmm. or other biblical, biblical verses, uh, that you were in some way mentally prepared for some kind of um, end times and Armageddon and apocalypse and all of that in a very strictly Christian literalist interpretation and then of course you diverge from that but here you are dealing with subjects that are also very much akin to the subjects you dealt with from a very different point of view back then could you just take us on that journey a little bit if you would sure i'd be happy to you know um i see fundamentalist christianity as sort of just uh dancing around the edges of of really profound truth and reality and so uh yeah there was this uh this upbringing in uh, armageddon but uh today i'm realizing that you know i suppose on some level that was good preparation but um, it misses the profundity. You know, this is not about heaven and hell, and this is not about, um, uh, boy, if we just accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we'll get taken out of all of this stuff, and we won't have to go through this transformation and blah, blah. Um, What I realized is that apocalypse actually means the unveiling, That's the original meaning of the Greek word. And so, as we notice, many, many things are being unveiled for what they are. Lots of uh, illusions are being destroyed. Lots of truth is being made manifest. And, um, you know, mostly, most importantly, the truth of who we are. That's what this is all about, is the truth of who we are. We're not hopeless, uh, you know, sinners on our way to hell in the hands of an angry God. We are 
you know, incarnations of the divine with these human egos that need to be transformed so that we can come to understand the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who we really are. That's what this global crisis is about. I didn't get taught that in, you know, at the age of eight as I was reading the Bible with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. They didn't have that perspective, exactly. But it is interesting that, uh, thank you for that. I really, really appreciate that. It is interesting sure. that uh, prophecy, Christian, Jewish, Tibetan, Vedic, do point Mayan to this time period as mm-hmm. being of, you call it, of course, the great transition, the great turning, another phrase used now. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that we are at this defining moment. I, I really like to think of us biologically as members of a species. And I really encourage my students and others, my audience, to think about us that way. Number one, even first and foremost, as sentient beings, along with all of our other sentient brothers and sisters, from, you know, the mosquito and the amoeba, all the way up to, uh, you know, the largest mammal. Um, But that there's something unique about each species, and it has its tendency to want to survive um Absolutely. and i think that thinking this way rather than this ridiculously sectarian partisan thinking that we do along the lines of race and creed and geography and all of that when you start to look at us as a species it transcends those types of particulars. It doesn't do away with them, and God knows who would want to do away with these beautifully biodiverse organisms, you know, that we're all different colors and genders, and you name it, for a purpose. That's part of the plan and part of the joy. Um, But when you think species level, it pulls us out of the morass that we find ourselves in so deeply entrenched in and gives us another sort of space for breathing, another opportunity and another possibility for future. Your your thoughts? Well, I think the main thing here and yes, uh we should we should really uh, treasure these differentiations in species, the uniqueness of all life and each aspect of life. Um, and and marvel at that. I mean, that in itself is is just an occasion for jaw dropping awe and and, True. and soaring gratitude. And we're, there is no separation, you know. And that's right. what this crisis. Part of the reason for this crisis is to take us into those depths where we realize, where we feel on a cellular level, there is no separation at the same time that we are all incredibly beautifully unique absolutely absolutely uh you're reminding me carolyn of the uh magnificence of the course in miracles which says actually that there's really one problem on the planet uh and that is the idea of separation and uh that that really is the kernel of our existential issues that, you know, without which 
we would be, you know, acting as mature human adults with utter respect for each other and working at developing those other um, kind of a neurological traits that we really do have of of bonding and cooperation and socializing and play and sport and humor and creative expression, you know, and instead of uh, playing with war toys all over the place, you know, and all of that kind of murderous, destructive culture, we would have had and can have one that's very much on the upswing, so to speak. Does that all resonate with you? Yes, and I think that we are so far on the end of the continuum of belief in separation uh, that we we are, you know, it is killing us, and we are being forced, and through this collapse and through this trauma, I believe we're going to be absolutely compelled to realize that we're in this together and that there is no separation. I don't know how that's going to play out. I I suspect it will be different in each person's life, but we will realize that we are all in this together, that there is absolutely no separation. We will realize the extent to which we need each other because we cannot go through this transition alone. It just isn't Without each other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, I heard say this wonderful phrase that I quote rather regularly, which is, we all may have taken different boats here, but we're all in the same boat now. Exactly. <laughs> I think Beautiful. he's uh, right on with that. We are speaking with Carolyn Baker, Ph.D., psychotherapist and teacher, professor of history, and uh, practicing psychotherapist for, for many years, and author of numerous books, one of which uh, we're talking about today, and it has threads to many of the others, Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times. And uh, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World Radio. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we also have a weekly community cable public access show here in New York City, every Monday at 7. So if you do not yet get our newsletter, which comes out once a week, an email newsletter, please go to our website, abetterworld.tv, triple dot, abetterworld.tv, and sign up for it. We so appreciate your involvement and participation through listening and uh, writing to me and sharing your thoughts, comments, and feelings about our shows and things you think that we should be addressing. So, uh, Carolyn, I'm so glad to have you on today to talk about this incredibly important subject. I really feel it's so important. And I would love for you to kind of get into some of the granular level of the work that you've been doing with your clients and students of how do we um, begin to deal with the uh, situation of, I know you speak about peak oil, and we may have some different ideas about that, but nonetheless, uh, what it really kind of signifies is that we're running out of gas, <laughs> no matter what, right. with our way. We're exhausted in our way um, of living, and it's utterly, completely exploitative, 
Uh, it's there's little sustainable about it. There is a change taking place in some businesses and some governments, uh, but it's way too little, way too late in general. We've got COP21 coming up in December in Paris. Uh, those conversations are so slow that if we were to even achieve the finest outcome from that, it's going to be way too little, again, too late to curb the, the horrors of what we've created to date. How do you see us relating sort of on the ground to the situation that is, as you're saying, calling for change? Well, thank you for that question. I'd love to, to get into that right now. Uh, I'm speaking to you uh, as I am on the East Coast of the United States tonight. And the reason I'm here is that this weekend, starting the day after Thanksgiving, I'm going to be at the Rowe Conference Center in Massachusetts doing a weekend uh, offering a workshop on grief. And this is where my work has taken me most recently to doing grief workshops, grief weekends, where people have the opportunity to come together and really, first of all, begin to talk about the grief that they're carrying, whether that is personal grief or losing a loved one or losing a job or having a terminal illness or whether it is grief for the planet. There are many, many forms of grief, and they're all connected. And what I am finding is that as people go into this grief with support in a safe, supportive container, uh, that they get down into places they've never gone before, that they realize the depths of their grief, they're able to get it out in a safe and supportive way, that they deepen their sense of connection with each other, and that then they're able to you know, sort of go forth and perhaps be more activist in the world, or perhaps they feel more of a sense of wholeness in the world, more of a sense of, wow, you know, not now that I'm not carrying all of that, what do I really want to do? Who do I really want to be in the world? I think that the sanest response to what's going on on the planet, first and foremost, but first and foremost is grief. Deep grief. Mm. Wow. Yes, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, the idea of, you could say on one hand, for me, you know, as uh, Andrew said, you know, wake up in the early morning to what's breaking your heart, Andrew Harvey, our a dear yes. friend and colleague of both of ours who introduced us, by the way, and thank you, Andrew, yes, so much for that. Uh, you know, uh, I feel that that's very right on. And for me, I keep finding that my heart feels like it gets broken, Carolyn, around what we're doing to our Gaia, our Pachamama, yes. our real yes. Earth Mother. I, I don't know why this happened but in my life somehow I really did fuse an association between my personal mother and my my biological mother mother and earth mother I don't know I mm. I actually felt that I 
took another step beyond Freud back when I was an mm. early psychotherapist in the mm. early 80s. And I said, you know, while I really do believe he was so right on with so many aspects of what he saw about human nature, and then Jung with the archetypal aspect, and you could say this is perhaps a a growth out of my understanding of Jung, which I know has been a major influence in your life, as as yeah, with mine. But, but really recognizing that our real issue isn't really with our personal mother, and I can understand the programming that happened pre and perinatally, blah, 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 and I'm very into that level, by the way. Um, but it's really with life itself as given by our Earth Mother. And that's literal. It's not just archetypal in some kind of abstract way. It's literal and symbolic at the same time. Just, I'm engaging you because you're so aligned with this. Your thoughts? Well, yes, and and I'd like to say, I'd like to add to that and say um, one of the things I, I'm I'm life coaching now. I'm not I'm not practicing therapy at the moment, but I'm doing a lot of life yes. coaching and. Yes. Uh, a lot of people, you know, come to me and and they're so uh, separated from the earth, and they find themselves spending, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day on the computer. Uh, lots yes. of people um, wanting to find the next piece of, um, I call it, collapsed porn. You know, what's the next disaster? What's the next piece <laughs> of evidence that we're, you know, going oh, to hell and hell? And uh, and and so one of the things I'm doing with folks, you know, all the people that I work with, is I am coaching them and sort of holding their hand by Skype or phone to go out into nature in some way, not doing anything, not riding the bike, not climbing a mountain, not hiking, but just to go yes. out and be present be. in nature content- yes. contemplatively and engage all of the senses to see, hear, feel, taste, touch nature and see what that's like on a cellular level. And what people finally connect with is, this is my mother. This is a Mm. part of me. We are not separate. Nature is not somebody else. And and so I'm I'm very, very much uh, encouraging people to get involved with nature in this way to really experience her as the mother and uh, as and as ourselves. I'm so glad to hear this. I talk about therapy. Oh boy, talk about <laughs> healing. You know. Yeah, it's I, called ecotherapy, but you know, I don't care about the labels. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Me neither. Absolutely. I was doing this before I even heard of ecopsychology. That was. I was amused when I heard there was a field called ecopsychology. I went. My God, right. I think I discovered it, you know, which actually <laughs> exactly. is the best way to come to something anyway, you know. And uh, yeah. so, yeah. Uh, well, th- I very much appreciate that and your comments about the mourning. Um, you know, the grieving and the mourning is something, again, that has been so uh, removed and marginalized in our society. We so don't like talking about it, which is why I think it haunts us all the more and perhaps might be a part of a psychological reason, in at least in part, why we're seeing so many violent 
murders and shootings and all of that across our country today. It's because of the suppression of real, genuine, authentic grieving and mourning. And, you know, as you well said, this is not just about someone dying, although it may be about that. It might be the dying of a lifestyle, a dying of an ego, a dying of a way of life, a dying of a part of us, um, or I really put it, the murder of our of our mother. I think that that's yeah. a very deep mourning that we're all experiencing. We're literally murdering our mother. How does that Absolutely. feel? You know, how does that oh. feel? Please. Well, you know, I, I I think that it takes a while for people to really connect those dots, you know, because most people would say if we said that to the, to the average person on the street, they wouldn't get it. But I do yeah. believe that that's what people are carrying, absolutely, uh, that yeah. people are carrying boatloads of grief and anger uh, that they're not aware of regarding what we are doing to the earth. And how can we not be mentally uh, disturbed? And distraught when the very thing on which we support, we depend, the mother that is also us, is is being murdered and is is withering away. Of course, that has an effect on us profoundly. Absolutely, we're all engaged collectively, Carolyn, in matricide. Yes, we are. It's thank you for that. You know, and yeah, and it's 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 a um a recognition and an acknowledgement that is really, in a way, unbearable, literally unbearable. So that can, just like we're facing our own death, as you were saying, um, this is another horror of equal comparable magnitude, you know. Um, A whole other aspect of what you do uh, that I think is so important is draw distinctions uh, between the nature of preparation. Uh, by Before going into that, I just kind of want to bring up uh, what might be a little bit of an analogy. I'm remembering back to the late 90s with the advent of Y2K. And nobody knew what was on the other side on January 1st of 2001. Mm-hmm. And there were all sorts of speculations and all sorts of, you know, stories and belief systems and ideologies. You name it. And they, were, they could be bought on the corners at the corner store for however much you had in your pocket. And uh, um, right. at the same time, there was a, a potentially real threat because we knew less than we knew more. And uh, I was connected to uh, a wonderful group up in Massachusetts, as a matter of fact, called um, the Serious Community through Gordon Davidson and his wife. Uh, and they were preparing for Y2K not as a time for kind of getting your arms in place and your and your cans of food and all, although it might include some food, I think it probably would be wise to, but as a, an opportunity to build community around times that might be without electricity, that might be without um, uh, plumbing, that might be without the ordinary comforts that we have, and how can we come together collectively to help each other and be there for each other, sort of like the way people were at the founding of our country, in fact, in many respects. 
you know. And so this is another point, almost like that, but it's not. We don't have a clear date, you know. We don't have a point of departure quite the same. And there are people who are preparing, called preppers, as you well know, that are going to all lengths to build uh, boundaries around them and having all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not dungeons, but um, you know, spaces Bunkers. under the ground. You know, what what are they? Bunkers. Cellars. Yeah, bunker. bunkers. Right, that's the word. Thank you. Bunkers and all of that. And, you know, there's me and there's you. Separation, separation. You know, and don't mess with me and mine and all of that. And then there's another way of preparing, which you're really so much advocating in your work. Could you speak with us about that? Because that's very much more akin to our audience here at A Better World and certainly to my spirit. So what what do you feel that we ought to know in that regard? Sure. Um, Since 2013, uh, when uh, Collapsing Consciously was published, uh, we're now on the threshold of 2016, and I've learned a lot regarding climate chaos and what we're up against in terms of, um, you know, abrupt climate change. And so what I'm coming to understand is that there is really very little we can prepare for, um, that climate climate change is so volatile and so unpredictable, um, there's no safe place to go. You know, people used to contact me and say, where should I move? Where's a safe place? Well, right. folks, there's no, there's no safe place anymore. So Try Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people in the, uh, you know, in the elite power structure are actually talking about that. You know, we can trash this yes, planet and then go to Mars, uh, which isn't yes. going to happen. But um, mm-hmm. really, our preparation has to be emotionally and spiritually, and building community. And I'd like to just throw something in here that is very practical, something that I'm doing that I want people to know about. In January, uh, I'm going to be presenting on my website a symposium called Living Life with Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Threat. You can register for this by going to my website at carolynbaker.net. We're going to have, we've already interviewed people like Andrew Harvey, uh, people like Derek Jensen, climate writer Dar Jamal, and many others, and we're going to be not only broadcasting the interview of these folks, but then we're going to have discussion time afterwards where you can ask them questions, make comments, and we can discuss among ourselves uh, what we're experiencing with all of this. These people are not talking to us with facts and statistics and, oh, we're going to give you more information. This is going to be a group of of, um, presenters coming from their hearts. So I really want people to know this is going to be a very different kind of online symposium webinar. Um, And it begins uh, on January 18th. Go to my website and register, calenbaker.net. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. That's the kind of community building uh, we really need to see and have more of. And uh, that, folks, by the way, can occur – in a city, every bit as much, if not more, easily than out in the country. 
interestingly yes. enough, you know. But it it really has to happen everywhere, all geographies. Absolutely. Right. Yes, and I think, you know, we absolutely have to be doing this and connecting with each other and talking about this. I get so many people coming to me who say, I have no one to talk to, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this symposium is that you'll never again have to say, I have no one to talk to about this. Yes, absolutely. And that's what community is. I run a workshop slash salon in New York City and I've been out in Chicago and uh, Long Island, called A Better World Heaven on Earth Workshop. And it very much addresses a lot of what we're talking about this evening and from the point of view of community building. And it's it's almost like a, a spiritual support group in many ways. It's giving people uh, the full license to feel what they're feeling and share what it is they've experienced in the past uh, and to recognize where we are at this precipitous moment in time in our history on the planet and who we can be uh in light of it's basically in some ways it's it's a leadership training um but it's leadership from the heart and this is what i believe our spiritual traditions have really been speaking about for a long long time and uh in perhaps sometimes different language but it's certainly up to us to interpret it as something like this so we can help to lead and facilitate change uh, and openness in the heart. And that, of course, we know is what connects us all more powerfully than, than anything else, you know. Enjoying the same food is nice. Enjoying the same music is uh, very special. <laughs> but when your heart is open, boy, that's like talk about non-separation. Yes, I'm sorry. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that work, you know, because what you're talking about in this training that you're doing with these folks is you're helping them to answer this question, who do I want to be in the face of this global crisis? And Absolutely. that's what my work is about, is who do I want to be and what did I come here to give? What are my gifts? How can I use them? Um, and, and in that sense, this is a very exciting time. I don't know about you, Mitch, but oh, yeah. i got to tell you, I'm really grateful to be here right now, crazy as it is. Yes. Yes. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I get it. I, yeah, you I know, know you. I, I agree with you completely, wholeheartedly, I could say. Um, it is a very exciting time. It's uh, sad to see the death and destruction without any question, and that's, you know, how do we put it that mourning is enlightening? Well, mourning is enlightening. enlightening. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Because mourning opens us up and makes us whole. And, yeah, it feels, you know, at times like it's going to tear us apart, but ultimately if we stay with it, and especially if we get support, um, we come through it. Not we don't end it, but we come through it out the other side and realize, oh, wow, this is the doorway to wholeness. And people say, exactly. you know, when they do these grief work, grief workshops, yes, I feel so much more alive. I feel so much more whole, so less disconnected, so, so um, at one with myself. Liberated, literally liberated, yeah. because otherwise – People, we're all carrying around this heaviness 
because we don't know who to speak with about these very saddening, if not tragic, feelings. And like, Absolutely. where do we go with these? And that group context you're going to do in row, the context you're speaking about uh, online, I believe it must be, on January 10th, the group that yeah. I'm leading as well. These are all places people can go and speak and share the the heaviness and the depth of their heart, and that ultimately is a form of liberation. And also we can speak our joy, which, uh, you know, this culture doesn't know much about joy because we're so busy chasing after happiness. And so uh, <laughs> Andrew and I very soon are going to be starting a book, writing a book together called Radical Joy in the Age of Despair, because uh, as yeah. well as, as working with people around grief, I want to work with people yeah. around joy so that people really know what you that bet. is, because most people in this you culture bet. don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. that That is its own show, frankly, <laughs> you know, but I yeah, completely no. appreciate your making that point. I feel I, I look at things oftentimes from a uh, kind of a neurophysiological point of view, and I feel like we have created um, railroad tracks in our brain of uh, the negative emotions of anger and um, judgment and reactivity, and we keep getting railroaded quite literally down those tracks instead of joy. And um, we have to sort of disengage literally pull ourselves out of what becomes virtually an addiction, an emotional addiction to certain kinds of uh, emotions and re-engage in something that is a much higher-minded and bigger-hearted way of being, you know. And I see you're going down that track, no pun intended, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I I very much appreciate that. You know, I, I... God, if there's a a way that I can contribute to your January 10th seminar, you know, let me know because it's uh, right up my alley. And that's probably why Andrew thought you and I should get to know each other here. Um, because I think that's uh, true. And you feel free to go to my website at net and check it out. Um, you can learn everything about it there that you like. And let me know if you want to register um, because we'd love to have you join us. And uh, for anyone out there who would like to join us, uh, carolynbaker.net, check it out. Love to have you. And let's build a strong online community of folks who really want to talk about these things and go deeper and share and stop feeling so alone. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Carolyn, any last words for our audience that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'd like to thank you for having me on this show, and um, I want to so just uh, I want to just throw one little quote in here from uh, my friend Guy McPherson, with whom I wrote the book Extinction Dialogues. He said, "At this late juncture in the age of industry, at the dawn of our day on Earth, we still have love, love for each other, love for our children and grandchildren, love for nature. One could argue." It is all we have left. So um, love is grief. Love is talking about these things. Love is coming together and supporting each other in our grief and our joy. Love is becoming whole in the face of things falling apart. Oh, 
Beautiful. Thank you very much for that quote, and thank you for bringing Guy McPherson forward. I'd love to have him on as well. We'll talk about that another time. He's uh, done beautiful work as well, just really significant. And uh, I want to thank you for all that you're doing to help awaken our society and bring us to another level of community. Carolyn Baker, thanks so much for being on the world. My pleasure. Thank you. Good night now. Wow, that was just uh, really enriching and really enlivening. Really, it sounds so funny, you know, talking about such subjects that could seem almost morose in our ordinary way of thinking. But in reality, it's through that uh, our denial of the importance of these subjects that we suffer. This is a source of a lot of our suffering. I was remembering as uh, Carolyn was speaking of the good words of uh, one of my teachers, Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher, who talked about Buddhism as really being a story about basic goodness. And the way we reach that goodness is actually through a broken heart. In order to move forward on the path of liberation, which is one of the ways that uh, Buddhist psychology casts our journey, he said that it was really through the broken heart that we experience each other most deeply. It's where we find the deepest sympathy and empathic resonance with each other. And I was a young lad at the time. I was in my early 20s when I first came across these teachings uh, cast this way. And I was truly shocked, honestly, at first. And I reflected on it and I went, absolutely, you're right on it. Because the broken heart cannot be a hardened heart. It's an open one by definition. It feels everything. And let's be very practical and real about it. How many times have you been in love? And this really brings it home. And for whatever the reason, that love-lover relationship wasn't working out. You were being left or even you were leaving. But the heart had been open. The love bond was there. And when the two parted, what pain that pain makes us oh so human as Nietzsche might put it so human and perhaps it is in that space that we can reach out to each other and how do I say kumbaya hold hands connect smile look in each other's eyes and just embrace our humanity and uh, through that humility And I believe the word humility and humanity come from the same ancient Greek root. We can build a kind of society that is harmonious, that is friendly, friendly in the true sense of that term, coherent and sustainable. That's respecting each other, respecting the earth, as Carolyn was so well putting it throughout today's show. There is such a need for connecting 
to the earth mother as a mother as a mother and uh, that can help bring us to another level of awareness and appreciation and awe as she put it toward all of our lives and life itself so I want to thank you all for joining me and us today it's really a pleasure and I want to do a shout out to my dear friend Andrew Harvey what a blessing he is his work on sacred activism and of which Carolyn Baker is part of that work and I am too and uh, Andrew's been on these airwaves a number of times both on radio and television here in New York with a better world and me and uh, we will continue this journey together so your participation and through your listening your attention is precious to us and I realize there are so many people places you can put it but those of you who choose to put it here is uh, a real gift to me and to my guests and uh, thank you all for that please if you would Take a time to write a note to me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr, my initials, at abetterworld.net. Share with me what happened to you in your listening and what opened up for you, and uh, share the show also with others. You can forward the link easily. It's all at abetterworld.tv, and join our uh, community. Get on the newsletter, and you can participate with us either from afar or from a near it's fine we love to have you remember that a better world is also a foundation it's a nonprofit so any uh, help you can be in helping us sustain ourselves is always so appreciated and that's also on our website a uh, a donut button there so thanks again Mitchell J Rabin for a better world and i look forward to seeing you all Thank you.